You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do the people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. This is Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio. And this truck will come to market, I can promise you that. For every doubter out there that said that there's no way this is true, how can that be possible? We've done it. It's my pleasure to actually let you guys enjoy the night, see the truck, know it's real, touch it, feel how sturdy it is. You're going to see that this is a real truck. This is not a pusher. Trevor Milton might have convinced investors that his company had built the truck of the future, a zero-emissions game-changer. But he couldn't convince a jury. After less than a day of deliberations, a Manhattan jury convicted Milton of securities fraud and wire fraud for enticing investors to buy Nikola shares with lies about technology that didn't exist. A stunning downfall for the door-to-door salesman turned billionaire who promised to revolutionize the auto industry. My guest is securities law expert James Park, a professor at UCLA Law School. James, the Justice Department is trying to crack down on corporate crime, and they certainly put a lot into this four-week trial. Yeah, I think so. I think there was a lot to put on. There were a lot of different misrepresentations, and I think for each of them, you have to be very careful to establish just exactly what was said and what was the actual truth at the time. And I think you have to tell a story for each and every one of them. And and I think the strength of the case to me is not on any single misrepresentation, but the whole, the collective whole of all four or five of them. When you add them up, I think that's where you get to criminal securities fraud. And I think it was also important that they put on evidence from insiders, people who worked at the company who testified that, you know, we tried to intervene. We tried to tell him you're not telling the truth. And so he can't just argue that, well, I just made a bunch of mistakes. They intervened and said that you are making false statements about material facts. There's also, a, you know, some testimony about how at some point they tried to lock him out of his social media account. And so this was not a situation where you have a single mistake by an important figure in the corporation. This is a a pattern in practice that was occurring over a number of years and accelerated during a critical period in the company's life when it was a newly public corporation. And so I think that's why we have this four-week case. So the defense seemed to be two-pronged. One, that he didn't have intent. He didn't mean to deceive potential investors. And in any case, his statements weren't material. And the defense attorney sort of compared it in the closing. He said, you know, they're going to have to go after the Energizer bunny after this. In other words, it was like puffery. 
it wasn't an intent to deceive. Yeah, I remember hearing the Energizer Bunny <laughs> phrase. Yeah. I had to laugh a little at that. But, you know, Energizer batteries work. They work pretty well. And so, you know, fundamentally, the product works and has been tested and is reliable. And uh, even if they have sort of a, a funny way of showing that, you know, there's nothing factually incorrect about the Energizer Bunny, as far as I know. And in this situation, it's not really puffery when you are misstating very particularized facts. You know, he's saying we're producing hydrogen at $4 a gallon at a time when it's selling for $16 a gallon. That's not true. They were not producing hydrogen at all. And so, you know, when you get that specific courts generally will say that's not puffery, that's a factual misstatement. And, you know, he's saying we produce this Badger truck using our components from the ground up and implying that they have developed the technology. It's their proprietary technology when, in fact, they're using third-party sources. They're saying we have all of these binding contracts And in the interview, he specifically corrects the interview to clarify that the contracts are binding when, in fact, they are not binding and could be canceled at any time. These are all facts. You know, one or two of them, maybe you could sort of say, you know, he's just making mistakes and doesn't have an intent to deceive. But when we get to multiple misstatements of factual information like this, I think it's very, very difficult to conclude that this was not without deceptive intent. And so I think that if you look at the case as a whole, it's strong. Now, the materiality point, you know, that's always an issue, a very important issue for any securities fraud case. Are the misstatements material? Are they important to investors? And they put on a witness who said that for each of these individual statements, we didn't really see an immediate stock price reaction. But, you know, to me, I think the materiality uh, would be in the story that's told as a whole with all of the misstatements together over time that collectively they must have had an impact on the company's stock price, which did increase Uh, exponentially over time during the period um, when he was making these misstatements. And so I think that materiality here, in my view, is is satisfied when you look at the misstatements collectively as a whole. Um, These misstatements create portrayal of a company that has finished products that are soon to be rolled out, and that simply was not true. The defense only put on one witness, and that was to the materiality. Obviously, a defendant doesn't have to take the stand in his own defense. But in this case, did it sort of cry out for him to take the stand? I mean, he has no criminal background that a lot of defendants are worried about if they take the stand. Obviously, he's a good talker. Why wouldn't he take the stand to try to deflect some of this? I think it would have been tough for him to defend his statement, you know, even with preparation. I think that he would have had to find some some evidence, uh, something to back up his statements. And I think that that evidence simply did not exist, that he was saying things that were false. And so I think that if he had to come up and explain why he was saying what he was saying, I think that um, the prosecutors uh, would have cross-examined him and made a lot of significant uh, points. And so I think that, you know, given that he did not testify, I think that there there may not have been sufficient evidence to back up the statements that he made. 
So prosecutors presented evidence that he spent more than $80 million in six months during 2020, you know, the Gulfstream jet, the multi-million dollar home, and the Turks and Caicos. How is that relevant? Doesn't that just turn a jury against a defendant? It's a good question. You know, I think it may speak to motive. And I think the strongest security fraud cases are brought against individual executives when they have a motive to personally enrich themselves. You know, this is what we see in Enron. Uh, with uh, Jeff Skilling and WorldCom with Bernie Ebers. Jeff Skilling sells tens of billions of dollars worth of stock in, in the months before the restatements that were made by Enron. Bernie Ebers had hundreds of millions of dollars in loans that were backed by WorldCom stock. And so to get at a individual executive, to bring a case against an individual executive, I think you have a stronger case when there is a motive to inflate the stock price. And I think that the spending would be relevant because it would show why he had an incentive or a special incentive beyond the normal corporate founder or executive to boost the company's stock price. And and another piece of evidence that came out is that he negotiated a shorter lockup period. He wanted to sell his stock six months after the IPO instead of a year. And I think that um, is also a piece of evidence that may indicate that, you know, he may have some financial reason to boost the company's stock so that he can get out as quickly as possible. And so I think it's fair game to make allegations like that in the context of a securities fraud case, because, you know, there is Second Circuit precedent, which says that um, individual enrichment is relevant on the question of whether somebody acted with fraudulent intent. And so I think that this is well within the bounds of proper evidence for the prosecution to introduce. So outside the courthouse, Milton said, I did nothing wrong. I was talking about the business plan. He still has hundreds of millions of dollars, and obviously there'll be appeals ahead. His attorney said they're going to keep on fighting. But appeals are an uphill battle. Was there any obvious error, trial error, that they can use here? I didn't see an obvious error. Others may have, but I did not see an obvious error. Do they have a chance on the materiality argument? I think it's a long shot. I don't think it's a 0% probability. I think they will raise the materiality argument. And I think that may be the best argument they have, because I think it's fairly clear that these statements are false and that there are multiple statements. And You know, you can always make an argument about deceptive intent, about fraudulent intent. But I think the prosecution made a very strong case. And I think if you look at the misstatements as a whole, they are material. And given that um, they happened multiple times after warnings, I think it's hard for him to argue that he's acting in good faith. I think that he knew as a uh, executive chairman of a public corporation that he has an obligation to tell the truth when he's speaking to the public. Yeah, so the U.S. attorney from Manhattan, Damian Williams, said the case is a warning to anyone who plays fast and loose with the truth to get investors to part with their money. So does this case have ramifications beyond this trial? I think it does. I mean, I think in some ways you can see this as a continuation of the efforts in the Theranos case. 
right? Theranos involved similar types of material misrepresentations with respect to the development of a product. It was in the context of a private corporation. And I think the next step is a company like this, which is newly public, had been acquired by a SPAC. And I think that this sort of builds on the lesson of Theranos, in my view, that if you are a relatively new technology company, that you have to tell the truth about your product. Given how important these sorts of companies are to our economy, given the activity we still have with respect to entrepreneurial companies, I think that founders and management teams of these companies should be very careful and take note of both of these cases. Take a very careful look at the sorts of problems that arose when you make factual misstatements. This will hopefully improve the practices with respect to these startup companies and newly public corporations. You know, we've seen these sorts of product claims throughout the history of securities fraud, you know, in times when entrepreneurial companies, technology companies become a more important part of our economy, then there are high investor expectations for their products. And so there's incentive to lie about the product and sort of their prospects. And so, you know, 1980s, we have Apple computer lying about the Lisa office computer, and that results in a $100 million verdict in a trial against some of the executives. And so we see these patterns again and again over the decades. And I think given the importance of entrepreneurial companies to today's economy, it shouldn't surprise us that we see similar theories of securities fraud being asserted. They did focus on social media a lot. So... It's a message there, too, that, you know, even on social media, you can't be exaggerating and giving misstatements. Absolutely. And I think that they highlighted the fact that social media is often accessed by, you know, individual retail investors. And this is a way that we know you can communicate with a portion of the stock market that previously had been somewhat ignored. And uh, you can get your message out to retail investors. And if you're persuasive, as we saw a year or two ago in the GameStop and AMC matters, uh, that if retail investors buy your message on social media, they can really boost your stock price. And, you know, that to me may also be another argument prosecutors might make with respect to materiality, is that even if we don't see an immediate impact with respect to sophisticated traders, you know, social media may take a bit of time for enthusiasm to sort of spread among uh, different members of social media as things get posted and reposted. But over time, it can have a very significant impact. And we did see a surge in the company stock around the time these statements were made um, over social media. So he's facing as many as 20 years in prison. Do you have any feel for how much he'll get? I, I doubt it'll be 20. Yeah, I doubt it will be 20 as well. You know, one of the things they may look at is investor harm. How much were investors harmed by these misstatements? They may have examples of retail investors who spend a lot of money when the stock was trading at, you know, 10, 15, 20 billion dollars and lost almost all their money now that it is trading at three dollars. And so I think one of the things they may argue is that there was a significant amount of market capitalization that was lost in the wake of the fraud. And I think that sort of harm can be relevant in terms of a sentence. You know, I think defense will sort of portray him as somebody who was overenthusiastic and he made a lot of bad judgment calls. And did he 
really intend to hurt people. But I agree with you. I don't think it's going to be the maximum penalty. Thanks so much for being on the show, James. That's Professor James Park of UCLA Law School. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. To the first union in American history. Champagne corks popped when an upstart labor union pulled off a stunning upset at an Amazon facility on Staten Island last April. Unions are seeing a resurgence in this country, with workers at big-name companies like Amazon, Starbucks, and Apple voting to unionize. Management often tries to curb union organizing with illegal tactics, despite a National Labor Relations Board and an administration that's in labor's camp. The middle class... The middle class built America. Everybody knows that. But unions built the middle class. That's a fact. My guest is labor law expert Kate Andreas, a professor at Columbia Law School. Kate, some pro-union employees seem to be trying something a little different. A group of Starbucks employees in South Carolina are suing the company for defamation over its response to a union protest. The employees accuse Starbucks of falsely and maliciously portraying them as criminals after they presented a letter of demands to their store manager, and the store manager then filed a police report. A defamation claim in a union organizing effort is certainly unusual and got a lot of attention, including from Senator Bernie Sanders. But is it effective legally? Yeah, so the allegations in this case are really pretty stunning. The employer apparently accused workers of trying to kidnap him without any evidence, according to at least reports. So the workers seem to be um, seeking to pursue a defamation claim because that gives them more ability to win remedies than proceeding under the National Labor Relations Act, because state law includes greater penalties for violations of defamation law than labor law allows. And I think their argument is that the harm here is one that's more of sort of defamation rather than a labor violation. It's not entirely clear whether the suit will be able to go forward because federal preemption doctrine does require that conduct that is protected by the act or prohibited by the National Labor Relations Act must be resolved. Legal issues around that must be resolved in the first instance by the board. Starbucks is a huge company. The union has prevailed at around 250 of the company's 9,000 stores. And the unions filed numerous legal complaints with the National Labor Relations Board. Do those complaints ever bring any kind of resolution 
I think what we're seeing with Starbucks is that there's overwhelming interest among workers and organizing unions. Hundreds of Starbucks stores in, I think, three dozen states have had union elections. And this is really pretty stunning, given that a year ago, no Starbucks had a union. And most, the vast majority of these have voted to unionize. Nonetheless, what these workers are confronting is a legal regime that really doesn't do a good job at protecting their rights. And so what we see is that the employer has engaged in a pattern of anti-union activity. And the penalties under the National Labor Relations Act are really pretty minimal. And so I think workers are looking to other tools to try to make sure that their rights aren't violated. Is Starbucks the best example of the pro-union movement? Have the workers there made the most progress? There's a lot of areas where workers are organizing in the last few years. I think we see increased organizing activity in the areas of healthcare, university workers, journalists, Trader Joe's, Apple workers, REI. But Starbucks is certainly a pretty stark example of how much interest there is across the country among workers in organizing unions so that they can have a voice at the workplace, so that they can address problems of low wages, um, of not having enough sick time, of just the vast range of um, concerns that workers have. They want to have a voice in how the company addresses those problems. And Starbucks is a good example of the rising interest in unions, particularly among young people. Do you think the rising interest in unions is in part sparked by concerns about health and economic justice that arose during the pandemic? Or is it, as you say, more about young workers looking to protect their rights? I think it's a combination of factors. I think for the last few years, it's become increasingly clear that the country has a really significant problem with economic inequality. And people who are doing the work that makes things run are not receiving their share of sort of the economic rewards from that. And that became particularly clear in the context of the pandemic, where we had the workers who were considered essential and had to keep working were actually, many of them, very low-wage workers facing significant health and safety risks. So I think the pandemic did kind of highlight those problems that already existed in the economy, as well as increasing concerns around health and safety. But then at the same time, we have a generation of young people who are coming into the workforce and recognizing that in order to make their jobs better and to improve conditions, um, that organizing collectively is the best route to do that. So studies show that 71% of Americans now approve of labor unions, and the majority would like to have a union if they could, which is the highest since it's been since 1965. And I remember we spoke when the upstart union, Amazon Labor Union, won that election at a facility in Staten Island. Now the group has had a second defeat in a row as far as, you know, workers voting to unionize. With these union fights, it seems like it's one step forward, two steps back. Yeah, I don't think the issue is that workers don't want unions, because as I said, there's really overwhelming evidence and increasing studies showing that the vast majority of workers would like to have a union if they could. But the problem is that the obstacles to winning a union are really significant. So employers routinely engage in extensive anti-union campaigning during union campaigns. Some of this is in violation of the law, and some of it is not in violation of the law, but it sends a very clear message to workers that they should not organize and that their jobs are at risk if they organize. And that makes it very hard to win unions. When you add to that, the fact that um, many employers, even once workers win unions, resist negotiating contracts. And the legal remedies for that are very minimal. 
you can understand why it's been so hard for workers to organize and to win contracts, notwithstanding that they have the legal right to do so. So I think it really just highlights the need for labor law reform in this area. Yeah, because that Amazon union, the Staten Island facility, they still haven't gotten a contract. And the president of the union said that at the warehouse near Albany, Amazon subjected workers to intimidation and retaliation on a daily basis. They filed dozens of unfair labor practice complaints uh, with the NLRB. Is that par for the course for these big companies? What can they do and what can't they do? Where's the line between intimidation and holding those meetings called captive audience meetings? Yeah, they're called that because um, essentially they're requiring employees to attend these meetings as a condition of employment. So if the employee declines to, they can be terminated. So where's the line? Well, the National Labor Relations Act protects employers' right to campaign against unions, but it doesn't allow them to do so in a way that is coercive. They can't threaten workers for organizing unions. The problem is that the line is often hard to draw, and workers often hear something as a threat because of the, the employment relationship, they know that they can be, the background principle is that they can be fired for any reason or no reason at all. And so frequently um, there's a debate about or litigation over whether a statement is a threat or, or just an opinion. And um, even when employers are found to have committed unfair labor practices, to either have threatened workers, to have fired workers for organizing unions, to have illegally disciplined workers for organizing unions, The problem is that the penalties for doing any of that are so minimal that it's often in employers' interest or they they deem it uh, to be within their economic interest to go ahead and violate the law because that can dissuade workers from organizing unions and the penalties that they will be faced with are very minimal. These votes are all secret votes, right? So the company doesn't know which way any particular worker is voting. That's true. Um, These are all secret ballot votes. The problem is that over the course of a union campaign, workers frequently become afraid because of all the things that their employer has done or said, that if they do organize a union, things will actually get worse. And in fact, because employers violate the law, they are often able to coerce workers in that in that way. So how big a setback is it for the Amazon labor union to have two no votes in a row? I think it is a setback, and it will probably require them to go back and think more about their organizing strategy. And But I don't think it changes the underlying reality, which is that Amazon workers have deep desire to change their conditions. They are very low paid. They work um, under very strict time constraints. They're often punished for any idle time. There's significant health and safety problems at these warehouses. And the desire to change conditions among workers will remain. And so I think that there will be continue to be organizing activity and continue to be union successes. It just is going to require you know, additional legal work um, in challenging the unfair labor practices of Amazon and additional organizing. Kate, how long will it take for that Staten Island union to get a contract? Well, it depends on... Um, both how well those workers are able to stay organized and how much economic and public pressure they're able to bring to bear against the company. There's no deadline for reaching a contract. One of the possible labor law reforms that has been considered is to require that a first contract go through 
mediation or even arbitration in order to make sure that a fair contract is reached. But our current law does not require that. So the workers need to bring to bear public pressure and um, economic pressure on the company to try to convince it to negotiate as it is required to do under the law. Another thing that's happening is that for this month, Starbucks and Apple were hit with shareholder proposals that call for labor rights audits after complaints by workers that the company has been trying to curb union organizing. And Amazon and Tesla were hit with similar proposals last proxy season. So is this another way to try to put pressure on these companies? Yeah, I think what those proposals reflect is a growing realization among shareholders that their company's violation of the law and anti-union campaigning is in contradiction with what the brands claim to be, and it can actually hurt the company. And it's another way to try to hold companies accountable and for following the law and for being good corporate citizens. Yeah, so a May proposal at Amazon secured 47% of independent voters and 38.9% in total. What strikes me is that you have investors, this many investors, wanting to support unions, and then you have Amazon with all these anti-union tactics at the same time. Does it come from the top? Does it come from, you know, lower levels of management? Is it organized union busting? Yeah, so I can't speak specifically to Amazon, but in general, um, typically when there is a significant anti-union campaign, it's coming from the top. And it's a company decision to try to coerce workers against joining unions. Um, And so I think the more public pressure is brought to bear either through shareholders through the media, through worker activity, through community activity, trying to call upon employers to respect workers' rights to organize, the more that that can help to change employer behavior. That along with law reform and even without statutory reform, this current National Labor Relations Board and the current general counsel at the board is working very hard to try to enforce and make real the promise of the statute. So the general counsel at the National Labor Relations Board has been pursuing very aggressively violations of the law in order to try to stop this kind of anti-union illegal behavior by companies like Starbucks and Amazon. I've been talking to Columbia Law School professor Kate Andreas about the resurgence in unions. Is there any move in Congress to change the labor laws? There is a bill pending in Congress, and it does have significant support. But unless the filibuster is removed, it's unlikely that it will pass. But that bill would make it easier for workers to organize unions, and it would increase penalties on employers who violate the law. It would also make it easier to win first contracts. So it would be a really significant improvement and enable the workers who do want to have unions to achieve them. Tell us about the union case the Supreme Court just decided to take up for this term. Essentially, um, it involves a strike that occurred, and it's kind of the inverse of the defamation case involving Starbucks. An employer sued Teamsters workers for their behavior during a strike under state law and is seeking to have that suit go forward, which would impose significant penalties on the union. The union argued that the state lawsuit was preempted and therefore they couldn't be subject to such significant damages. And they won at the lower court, but the Supreme Court just granted it. So there's some question about whether the court will change the law regarding preemption and make it easier for state lawsuits to go forward 
that would make it easier potentially for the Starbucks workers in the defamation case to proceed, but it also would make it a lot easier for employers to bring actions against workers who engage in strike activity under state tort law or state property law. The Supreme Court in recent years has not been, I'll say, has not been particularly kind to unions, particularly supportive of unions. Well, of course, there was the the big union case, the Janus case, and then there was the case about farm workers in California. The Supreme Court has issued a series of cases in recent years that are both hostile to unions and also to workers. So one example was the um, Janus case, which made it impossible for state employers um, to agree with their unions to have fair share fees, where all workers who benefit from a contract have to pay union dues or fees. The Supreme Court ruled that as a matter of the First Amendment, that is unconstitutional to have fair share fees and all public sector workers have to be open shop or right to work, meaning you can be covered by a union contract and get the benefits of a union contract, but not have to pay any contributions towards representation and bargaining. There was that case. Then there was another case recently that held that a California state law that gave organizers the right to enter farms to talk to farm workers on a pretty minimal basis every now and then, but in order to enable the organizers to have access to farm workers who often live on farms and are difficult to um, to organize, um, the court ruled that that constituted a taking, an illegal taking of property and violated the Fifth Amendment. And the court has also issued a number of cases that um, limit workers' rights. So, for example, it held that employees could be required to waive their right to proceed in class actions or collective actions through mandatory arbitration agreements, even though the National Labor Relations Act says that workers have the right to act collectively. And in all of these cases, there were very vociferous dissents, including dissents that expressed a worry that the court is returning to the kind of legal positions that it held in the early part of the 20th century, where it routinely struck down laws that benefited workers. So why do you think the court is taking this particular case? It's always hard to know why a case gets granted. Um, In this case, the employer argued um, that there was a circuit split or a split among the lower courts. And so that's one reason why the court often takes a case. And and so one possibility is that the court is just going to use this to clarify the longstanding preemption doctrine. There is a worry, however, that given how conservative and anti-worker some of the justices on the court have been in the past, that they might use this case to make it harder for workers to engage in collective action and and expose them to additional penalties under state law. I don't know about this recent case, but in a lot of these cases, the plaintiffs aren't paying their own legal fees. A lot of these cases are part of a broader strategy to limit the ability of the government to protect workers and consumers and the environment. And so, you know, even the case last year about the EPA's ability is kind of part of the same kind of broader campaign to limit the ability of government to regulate corporations in ways that protect ordinary citizens. Um, And so, you know, yeah, there are individual workers here and there who might not want to pay union dues, but the drive to kind of achieve right to work or the effort to expand the takings clause is really not driven so much by, you know, individual aggrieved citizens or workers, but rather by a broader agenda to weaken government's ability to protect workers and consumers and to protect the environment. Thanks so much for your insights, Kate. That's Professor Kate Andreas of Columbia Law School. And that's it for this edition of the Bloomberg Law Show.
Remember, you can always get the latest legal news on our Bloomberg Law podcast. You can find them on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and at www.bloomberg.com slash podcast slash law. And remember to tune into the Bloomberg Law Show every weeknight at 10 p.m. Wall Street time. I'm June Grosso, and you're listening to Bloomberg. It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers, and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights, and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com.